fascinating gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technologies. Welcome to another episode of Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies. This is the show that takes your favorite fictional science and technology and makes it a reality. We do that with the Brain Trust. That is what we are known as. I am the analytical mastermind, Daniel J. Glenn. With me is physics phenom, Dr. Michael Denon. Great to be here, Dan. I'm very excited. You know, I went forward in time and checked it out. This episode is awesome. So I'm oh, back to do it. We nailed it. I we love hearing it. that. I love hearing that. And we're going to find out why that is true. But before we do, we must introduce our enigmatic engineer, Ben Siebser. Ben, are you okay? Are you broadcasting from an undisclosed location, or can you disclose it? Well, no, I've, I've uh, commandeered the Krenim uh, time, time ship, and uh, I'm going to make things right. So you're existing outside of space and time, as we will find out very shortly. Exactly. Okay, good. We're going to find out what that means. So this, you know, this is really kind of a bittersweet moment for us guys, especially for me, because we are finishing up our Star Trek summer, and we've talked about a lot of different technology themes. It seems to have gone at warp speed for me, at like a warp six or seven. We just blasted right through this, guys. I don't know how you feel, but that's how I feel about it. I'm impressed that you're using the word warp now, Dan. <laughs> it's just part of my vernacular. It just fit right in there. It's what I pulled. Well, I, I watched a lot of this stuff, uh, a lot of Star Trek, I mean, in a short period of time. But one of the things, you know, we talked about a lot of technical themes. With this, we're going to talk about a theme that is universal in the Star Trek universe. I think it appears in almost every series, and that is the idea of time travel. Uh, so we're going to talk about that. We're going to focus on just a few of the examples here. And before I do, I have to mention this, guys. Unrelated, but extremely related. We are we are recording this right around, I think, two days removed from the 35th anniversary of Back to the Future. That is pretty exciting to me. That was the movie that really got me into time travel. Uh, I don't know what you guys think about that, but if you want to talk about that before we get into this, uh, I think you could give it its due, you know? Well, that is an amazing movie, Dan. As you may recall, I, I believe I, I came real close, if not actually picking it to win our movie contest. Right. Um, but I have no memory of the past anymore, having had it wiped out by a time device. But I, I'm with you. That that was an amazing movie. And I do think, actually, they did a lot of really good stuff with time travel. I liked what they did. Yeah, I think what's interesting is that... Uh, for the most part, Back to the Future falls a, a pretty different form of time travel than what we usually see in Star Trek, where the timeline is modified dynamically as you do stuff versus Star Trek, where does, that doesn't usually seem to be the case. I think you raise a great point here because let's really, you know, for a, before we dive right into this in some examples, we should really talk a little bit about the framework that kind of makes time travel possible. And to do that, we kind of have to talk about this idea of a block universe theory uh, in, in that eternalism versus presentism. Denon, you're a physics guy. Break it down for us a little bit. Well, I think the simplest thing to think about is a, a piece of film, a film that's been made. It works in this age when you think of digital films, too. But I like the physical film, which, you know, about 10 percent of our audience probably still remembers. 10%? <laughs> <And laughs> no, it's more than yeah, that. Sorry. No. That young. Yeah. The idea really is if you think about space and time from a general relativity point of view, time is just another dimension like space. And nobody has a problem with space existing everywhere at all quote, times are all spaces. Like, the left exists even when you're moving right and so on and up, down. 
Um, we tend to experience time a moment at a time, um, to excuse the pun, so we get, it's hard to think about, but I think the movie is the best example I ever heard, right? As you're watching the movie, you experience time going forward, but if you take out the film, you can physically look at the entire movie all at once, and you can see that how all of time could exist at one moment, but you just experience the different moments as if you were moving through it. That's my simplest explanation of this idea of a block universe or it all existing all at once. Well, I, you know, I, I like that for the audience and for me to kind of get my head around it. What's tricky about that, especially when you're talking about it from a scientific standpoint or a pop culture standpoint, which we are obviously doing, is you know, we, we can get our heads around space. Like I'm existing in one space. And I can move to a different space very easily. But this idea of moving, I exist in this time and another time existing independently, we as human beings see time flow. We watch time, you know, we watch ourselves go from being babies to adults. We go in that order. And one of this, I was watching, I'm going to put this, this video up on the website. It's with this neuroscientist, and he talks about this kind of a, a human concept of time flow. Does it exist in our brains, or is it an, an inherent property of time itself? Which I think is an interesting argument. Ben, I want to go to you first on this. What do you think about just that idea of flowing time, perceiving it from a mental you know, standpoint? You know, it's interesting, because, I mean, obviously that's the way our brains work, right? We can't see more than one instance at a time. Uh, our, our sensory organs are not capable of that. And, and in truth, we don't know if that's possible. We don't know if it's possible to have like four-dimensional beings that you know, see all time at once and can kind of transit between um, different moments. You know, we, we have these, you know, we, there's plenty of stories of fiction where there are these beings that can exist at all points in time simultaneously. But as humans, our, our pitiful senses just aren't capable of that. And so I think we're stuck like a computer is working on input serially and working on time serially where we can only process it at a moment, moment by moment. And that makes sense. Denon, what about you? Do you think that the time flow is an inherent property of time itself or is it more like space where it's static and we're just perceiving it? You know, I think that's one of the fundamental questions, Dan. And I have to be honest, this is something I ask my colleagues who work on general relativity from a, a very specific um, perspective that's going to come up as we talk about time travel. And I, I'm going back to my film analogy for a moment. We experience ourselves as a single person who's always moving forward in time. And perceptually, what's weird, right, is you can only remember the past. You can't remember the future. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Right? Yeah, yeah. that's a good point. But if you think of my film example, right, the actor in the film, right, or, or the actor on the film, when you look at the whole film, there's an actor in every single frame, right? Is that, you know, 10,000 different actors, one for each frame that just happen to have a connection that they think they're the same? Or is it one actor and how does that move through the frames? And, and the film example, if you go from a late frame to an early frame, that person's still there. If we think of ourselves as a single being moving through time, right, once you've moved to the future, you're no longer in the past. So the film example is an interesting one. Which are we? Are we a single creature moving through time so we're never in the past anymore? Or are we like the film and we really exist at every moment in time always? Right. Um, and that's that whole of flowing through time versus 
all time existing all at once. I hope that made some sense. That's that's kind of it's really hard to wrap your head around and think about, though. No, I think so. But I think we've given enough framework to kind of really understand what is possible. This We just have to kind of make time travel possible to be able to discuss it. And I think this idea of it kind of existing all at once allows us to go back to or at least move around in a time stream. Uh, you know, that, that kind of works in that respect. So, you know, when it came to time travel... The original series wasted no time getting right into it. They hit the fourth episode of the original series of season one. This is back in 1966. There's a, an episode called The Naked Time, where essentially, and I believe I spoke about this on a, on a previous, on the original s- series episode that we did, but essentially the crew lands on a planet, there's a virus that takes over, it infects the entire crew, and everything descends into chaos very quickly. And in some ways, they need to essentially erase the previous 72 hours. So they do this by kind of mixing matter and antimatter. That's essentially what happens. Uh, But then you're the physics guy, and you love the original series. So what happens here? So this is interesting, Dan, and it takes us to the general theme I'd like to use throughout the show of general relativity, uh, pun intended. (laughs) All right. What we're going to (laughs) do... is space and time are fundamentally things that can be warped. They can be bent. And they're bent by mass, and mass is energy. So if you want to do anything with time travel in a general relativistic sense, you have to create what are called called closed time-light curves. And we can say a little bit more about that later. But just think of it literally as bending time around on itself in a circle with enough mass. And as I said, mass is energy. So one of the best ways to generate energy is to have matter and antimatter annihilate each other. And so at its core, I think the series starts with a very intriguing idea. Because the question in time travel, when you actually look at it from a very serious physics point of view, is how do you generate the energy involved to make things happen? The second question is how do you generate it in the right way? That's more of an engineering question. We physicists just need to make the energy to begin with. Right. <laughs> ben, so how can, we, how can we do this from a functional standpoint? Well, it makes a lot of sense because antimatter matter, as Dennon said, is basically the most energetic reaction we know how to make. And we also know that the warp drives in Star Trek are based on antimatter matter reactions. The warp cores that we see ostensibly are a warp plasma made up of matter and antimatter. So fundamentally in Star Star Trek, they have this capability to manipulate and control antimatter very very well. In reality, it's actually super difficult because if antimatter ever touches real matter, it explodes and it and it evaporates. It, it completely annihilates itself. So the only way we know how to manipulate antimatter right now is through electric fields and magnetic fields because that's the only way to hold it in position without it touching any real matter. And we can do that, but with very small quantities. Uh, what's really interesting in Star Trek is the fact that they must have tons and tons of this stuff in the warp cores in this magnetic suspension. It's really, it's, it's an impressive engineering feat. You know, I, I really like antimatter just as a concept. I just think it's a really interesting thing that a lot of, you know, average people don't know about. And one of the things that I looked up, I'm going to put a, a link to this. I'm sure, you know, scientists know this, but I didn't. But just that when the Big Bang happened, matter and antimatter are always created in symmetry. There should be an equal number of matter and antimatter. And the fact that it's not is called the matter-antimatter symmetry problem. I just thought that was interesting. I'm going to put a great read up there. It has almost zero to do with what we're talking about. But if you want to 
to know more about antimatter, I'm, I'm going to put the links up for you. No, that's great, Dan. And actually, I will want. I just want to build on something real quickly that Ben said before we get too far away. He mentioned, of course, these are warp drives, and that's important. Again, general relativity theme. Warp is really about warping space so that you appear to go faster than the speed of light. So you already have an engine that's designed to warp space, and time is really just another dimension. There's slightly different properties than spatial dimensions in the theory of general relativity, but it still just is another dimension. So again, within the context of a, a sort of warp technology, that it would also warp time is not completely illogical in this sense, if I may quote Spock. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you're channeling your inner Spock there. I was very impressed with that. Uh, now, one of the things, and we're going to get to this later on, uh, so I'm just going to kind of throw this out there to think about, but one of the things that always kind of interests me is the idea that the time aspect, the time travel aspect, is kind of confined to the, the ship, the structure of the ship itself and not everywhere else. Is that true, or am I just kind of misunderstanding that? No, I, I, and that makes a lot of sense in this context because you're locally warping time. Okay. You're, you, and, and you're just creating a closed loop for yourself. So one thing, you know, think of like a big sheet and you're a little marble rolling on the sheet. And you're rolling in one direction and suddenly the sheet is bent and you curve around back to where you started. And you get to start over and now roll in a different direction. So the curvature is just around where you are and you just loop back. It doesn't have to change the whole universe, as it were. Got it. So that's also another exciting sort of piece about this particular example. I like yeah, that. Although, although an interesting thing on top of that that I think is if you're warping space enough for the, a ship, uh, which, and starships are pretty big, to travel that curve, you actually probably have to make the curve fairly big because otherwise you'll end up with weird time tidal forces and you might end up with, uh, things on the ship aging at different rates if you don't have a nice even time curve. Oh, that's crazy. I mean, like the front hull will be deteriorated and old and the tail will be brand or, new. Or it might get ahead of the rest of the ship and you end up splitting the ship in half because you didn't have a flat enough curve. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow, the things you have to think about when you're a chrononaut, you know? Uh, yep. Uh, so what are the, so that's kind of the matter-antimatter approach that they take. Uh, so the next example, this is kind of one of my favorites. I really like this movie. This is the Star Trek reboot in 2009. And a lot of times in the Star Trek universe, time travel is kind of used to bridge the gap between series, between cast members. It, that's kind of the narrative use for it. Uh, and I think that's actually a great use of it. And this 2009 reboot, I thought they did a great job with this. But there's a couple of kind of interesting factors here because essentially they take what is red matter, which we'll have to define, they create singularities, these black holes, these intense, you know, centers of gravity, and then go through the black hole into another time dimension. It's kind of fuzzy on that. So let's talk about the feasibility of that. But first, I want to really, let's get red matter first. In your idea, Denon, what, what is red matter? What is it doing? I, I have to say, Dan, I love this movie, and I really felt at my gut it was one of the best examples of dealing with time travel, and huh. I just wish they had done it without red matter. <laughs> for me, <laughs> All right. <laughs> for me, I'm just going to have to go with it. It was the most goofiest part of the movie. But that aside, yeah, yeah. It, was ac it actually was a, good, it was a good device. It worked very well, and it is one of the things they don't really explain, um, and it's an interesting concept. Like, what would it take? A and I think... What they were trying to probably, if, if I was to guess what they were trying to play off of, 
is there's a couple, there's two big mysteries right now that we have in our theories of physics. One is what's dark matter and two, what's dark energy. Dark matter is the easier to explain. It's something that interacts with gravity, but not light. Um, hence, you can't see it. And, and we're pretty sure we know where it is and it might be exotic. It might not. Dark energy is a little more interesting. It's, it's basically almost an anti-gravity. And I'm wondering if that's kind of what they were trying to capture, um, perhaps, is, is this feel of something that just interacts with gravity in a very different way. Mm. So if you release it from its confinement field, um, you could create interesting gravitational effects. Because that's what they're going with. They're trying to modulate you know, the challenges of a, of a planet ripping apart and exploding and they don't do a really good job, and you end up with this black hole. Right. And then they later use it to purposely destroy planets. So it seems to be more of a, a weird gravitational effect matter that just interacts with gravity in a different way. I see. Okay. So that's essentially what the red matter is. And I, that makes perfect sense to me, actually. I think I, I like that, using that concept to kind of adapt it. So then when they kind of create these singularities, they produce these black holes, which aren't as massive as like the ones at the center of a galaxy, from what I'm understanding, but they still kind of do the trick. Uh, ben, what, what do you think about this idea of traveling through the black hole and, and having that kind of cut through the dimensions? Well... What we do know about black holes is that they are the most, you know, they're the most massive things that we can, well, see in quotes, right? Because you can't actually see a black hole. Right. Because, <laughs> right. because light can't escape them. But in terms of a thing you can see versus like dark matter, which we have no way of seeing, you can, you can tell where black holes are because they suck up all the light. Um, and there's also a, a concept called a, uh, there's also like energy that they give off like black holes eventually evaporate because there is some kinds of energy that can get away from them. I think what's interesting, though, is that what we do know about curving space time is that you need a lot of mass and black holes, therefore, would be a great way to do that. What's tricky about it is how you would make that defined space curve that would do what you want it to do out of a probably somewhat more chaotic thing like a black hole. Yeah, I think in this case, you really have to get lucky. It's not a planned time travel situation, mm, right? Mm. The black hole, wh one way I like to think about it, singularities are, are sort of places in the space-time surface that are weird. So sort of imagine taking a, a sheet and cutting halfway down it so you have two loose ribbons, and you start bending them around and reconnecting them in interesting ways so you no longer have a flat sheet. The black hole could potentially do that. We usually think of it doing it with the spatial structure. But you could imagine perhaps it's also doing something to the time dimension in weird and interesting ways. And so you're connecting different sheets of time together. One of the things, and I don't know if I'm understanding this theory correctly, but just this, it's kind of the, the concept of it being so gravitationally dense, so so dense that the gravitational fields kind of punch a hole through space-time? Is that kind of the idea? And then this, the, the matter that it's taking in, that the, that the black hole is, is attracting and taking in, would shoot through on the other side. And th is that kind of the idea behind you being able to go through a black hole? Yeah, so that is one of the ideas, and we call the other side the white hole often, because that's where all the stuff's coming out. It's the idea right. behind a wormhole. You, you really are... Think of it as sort of two sheets of paper that are kind of near each other connected by a tube of paper, right? You punch a hole in one sheet and you, you stretch it and connect it to the other side. And 
we talk about black holes and the solutions um, in general relativity that we usually look at all involve the spatial dimensions. But mathematically, there's really nothing to prevent you thinking about connecting the time dimension as well in these interesting structures. It's just not something we expect easily happens naturally at the moment with our current understanding of what we look at. But that's kind of what I find fascinating is, unlike, you know, Back to the Future, which you brought up, <laughs> we're not relying on a time travel machine. You're simply relying on the structure of space and time here to connect different time sheets, which is, I think, an intriguing idea. What I think is kind of interesting about the white hole is how come we don't see other white holes? In, if white holes exist, how come we don't see them? We have so many black holes in our universe that we know of, but we don't have any. We have a lot of entry holes, but no exit holes. What's, what's going on there? Well, there is a thought that maybe some of the things we see that are super bright might be. That was always one idea. But you're right, Dan. It, it, that does seem to be a challenge with this particular view of the structure of black holes. Okay. Maybe they're inside the black holes. The white holes in the black hole? Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. Maybe that's why they evaporate. Well, you know, and I think, you know, one of the, so as we kind of talk about time travel as a concept on, on Star Trek, one of the things that I like that they do, and this happens in Voyager, which we just finished talking about, they kind of weaponize time in this one, which I think is kind of an interesting way to tie all this stuff together for us because we do technology. We've hit a lot of science so far. But one of the cool technology things is there was in season four, episodes eight and nine, the, it's called Year of Hell. And what's kind of crazy is there's this group of aliens, the the Kremens, that's it, right? Right. Krenim. Krenim. Okay, I was close. I was thinking Kremlin, which I'm sure that it had something to do yeah, with. You know, I'm sure that was in their thought process. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They do feel like they exist outside of time for sure. But so they have a ship that kind of is outside of the the time, the, outside of time completely, which is a little hard for me to understand. But what they do, what the, the key thing here is they have essentially a weapon that can erase things, people, objects from the time stream completely. This, I'm trying to figure out how we could make this work. Uh, let's hit the concept first. So, Denon, how conceptually could this work? And then, Ben, you're going to build it for us. So, I was really struggling with this one, Dan, for a little bit. A couple of things. First of all, I'm going to blow your mind. You're not going to be surprised by this one, I think. Okay. How do you get outside of time? You make a foam. <laughs> or at least a little bubble of time. <laughs> Just, you know, okay. Go, go. Not like not like silly string. You're talking about like foam, like uh, a yeah, well, like a space scale. time foam. Right, okay. Yeah, in the grand quantum scale. foam. But but if we think about the film analogy I gave earlier, um, what you're kind of arguing for, I think, in this weapon is kind of a two step process. It's sort of like if I eliminate you. I don't know, from frame 206 of the film. Mm -hmm. What happens is there's a backward reaction through the entire film because it's connected, and you, you that person is now eliminated from the whole film, which then branches off another film strip that goes forward without that person in it, and that's the one you find yourself living in. So it's like a massive film editing machine. Now, you do all of our editing, so I'm not sure if what I just said makes any sense as an analogy <laughs> from an editing perspective. Right. But, but that's how I'm viewing it. It's kind of this global editing, creating a second film strip. Well, I do edit a lot of time things, a, a lot of strips at once, and it feels like I'm quantum editing. But I think I'm, st I think it's still linear as far as far as I know. <laughs> uh, now, one of the things, well, so Ben, I want to hear your reaction to that, and then I've got I've got a couple questions for you if we really want to make this real. 
Yeah, I think what's interesting is the fact that the ship exists outside of time in a way also makes me think it exists at all time. I mean, obviously, they perceive you know, time linearly from the ship, but it makes me think that the, because the weapon is coming from out of time, that when it interacts with something at that moment, it's actually attacking its entire existence, not just... Ooh, I like that, Ben. Yeah. But it, what's also interesting, though, is like, let's say they erased like Voyager. Would it also erase like the iron ore on Earth that Voyager was made out of? And like, would Earth shrink a little bit? <laughs> yeah, that's because one of the things I was trying to figure out what their targeting system was. Like, for example, if they targeted humans, would they hit chimpanzees, too? They're like 98 percent similar. You know, I don't know. Well, I, I think what what it does is it takes out the matter. Which is really interesting because while you're not, while you personally only existed for, you know, 30 to 40 years, the, or 100 years, you know, if we're talking about a full human lifespan, the molecules, the atoms in your body have been here since the beginning of time. So have they been erased for all of time? Like, are some uh, atoms now missing from some dinosaurs? Right. Oh, well, actually, I'm, I'm going to go back to Ben's analogy and bring back my film. And what I like is, since they're in a bubble of time, and we actually we can think of this, I think, from a space perspective with my film strip analogy again, right? They're, they're basically hovering above the film strip. And if you think about it, uh, angles come into play here. The farther up from the film strip you are, the more you could attack at one moment with a given spray. So I think Ben's right. Even though they talk about eliminating it from all time, what they're actually doing is, again, going to my frame analogy, they're, say, hovering above frame 206. They can see most of time, but not all of it. And that's probably part of the reason why they never quite are able to fix things. He's always trying to get the one station back. But my guess is his bubble is not sufficiently removed to get to that mm. moment in time ever. So no matter how hard he tries, he's not going to succeed with that. And so you sort of eliminate them from those sections of time that you're able to see um, and then reform a new film out of that. I like that. And what's, what, what's interesting is that you know, there's this kind of like Moby Dick theme where he's kind of chasing this impossible dream to restore a timeline that was per essentially perfect for him or to, re you know, re to restore his wife. And what I like is it's almost like chaos theory gets in the way. This idea that you there are so many things that you can have all these calculations for, but you can't predict. And it's kind of like what the movie It's a Wonderful Life taught us. You know, if you remove right. a man from existence, how many people did he talk to? Did he touch? Did he, you know, how many people did he affect throughout his life? And once you remove him, what happens to them at that point? And I think when you start talking about entire races of people and not, you know, or entire races of beings at all, you're, you're talking a grand scale of unintended consequences that you're disrupting across the eons, you know? No, I, I love that, Dan. And it's it, it also but the more and the more I think about it though, I do think of this sort of I'm I'm really loving my film strip analogy. I can tell. And right? you you really you really, you really like that well, one. Cause, cause, cause you can think That's about great. it as you as you erase the certain things, there's almost self healing film. It has to fill in that gap with something else. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so something else flows into the gap and that's how you end up with the new film. Yeah. But you're right, the chaos theory really comes in. It's just 
And, and that's what I love. Ben had made this comment way earlier when we were talking off camera. These are great mathematical episodes. You really have to geek out on all their calculations and attempts to get it right. <laughs> yeah. uh, thinking more about, like, does it erase all the atoms from all the way back in, in time to, like, say, the Big Bang? Like, if a chunk of matter is just missing during the Big Bang, like, that's going to make everything different. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Like, it throws everything it's off. Gonna, yeah, it's, it's, you know, who knows how the stars will coalesce differently. <laughs> I think that, that, but that, and that's exactly what I'm saying is the, the, even yeah. these, when you go, and you, even if you're affecting atoms that go back that far, I mean, you're really affecting a lot of different things. Everything goes back that far. That's what's so mm -hmm. interesting mm -hmm. about, about the universe is that the hydrogens in, in me right now were created billions of years ago. Like there's no, there's no new protons that have been created. I mean, there's been some antimatter matter experiments but beyond that <laughs> right. it all goes back to the beginning yeah you you are ageless ben you you yeah. are made of your stardust we uh, are star stuff yeah. as sagan would say right <laughs> so what one thing here before we finish off on this voyager thing with this specific episode what i didn't understand and this is a spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen it but they reset the time stream by essentially using that time erasure weapon, time erasing weapon, I don't know what you would say, yeah. on the ship itself, thus nullifying all of the things that it erased. But Captain Janeway does that by essentially crashing the, the crashing Voyager into that ship. So wouldn't she have been affected and therefore erased herself from existence? Or am I thinking too much? I think she was already dead, so she couldn't get erased, Dan. That's my theory. Okay, but Ben probably has a better one. Well, no, I, I think I think the best way to think of it is if the ship erases itself from existence. So the ship the ship comes out into real space time. There's a moment when they in or because when Voyager is attacking, they talk about how it had it had to like re-enter normal space time. Mm -hmm. And so my thinking is when the time core blows up, it it effectively erases the ship from ever existing. And it, and like Denon was talking about it by erasing itself from the film, the film reheals itself as if the ship never got built and everything goes back to, you know, normal. And, uh, and also Dan, technically she was probably still somewhere towards the outer edge. And I think the time event happens when the core of the ship has its event. Okay. Um, and gets erased. Okay. Yeah, um, but it's a really cool idea that it can erase itself. It's like the ultimate self-correcting eraser. Yeah, yeah. E even if even if Voyager would have been erased by that explosion, the weapon would have been erased first. So once the weapon gets erased, that resets it, and Voyager doesn't get erased because the explosion never happens. Wow, that, this <laughs> this is a lot to get our head around. I mean, I, I think. We've explained quite a bit, and if I'm, let me understand if I have, if I've come to the correct conclusion, guys. But we've solved this problem with a quantum foam-based, self-healing, macroscopic film that is our existence. Is that pretty close? I like that. I think that's right, Dan. Okay, yep. I nailed it. Way to go. All right. Very succinct. Very analytical. Well, thank you. Thank you. I feel like I've been a little rusty in the past couple episodes. It's nice to be back to form. So this is, we got a couple, let's hit errors, additions, and omissions. I got a couple of fun ones for this, but Ben, do you have anything that you want to talk about that we're not going to? 
Well, first off, I want to correct myself from the Deep Space Nine episode. I said Delta Quadrant instead of Gamma Quadrant at one point. Oh my god! Very embarrassing. I, yeah. I'm I'm surprised you brought it up because I mean that's yeah. I'm getting a little a little misty here. Whew. Beyond that, what I also think was really interesting is there's a there's a hint to the Krenum in a previous season where we see Kess going back in time um, as a result of the initial Krenum attack, and I think you know that's a fun episode to talk about if anyone wants to you know, hit us up on social media about <laughs> going backwards in time due to being attacked by time weapons. I like that. Ben definitely wants to talk about this episode, clearly. I want to talk about it now. Um, Dennis, what do you have? Well, I have two things. First of all, we mentioned the movie where they reboot everything. Um, they go through the black hole. I just love that Spock tricks Kirk into doing stuff by implying that if Spock meets Spock, they'll blow up and the whole universe will end, <laughs> which is a common trope. Yeah. And, of course, Spock meets Spock and nothing bad happens. Right. Um, so Spock lying to Kirk, fun thing to have happen. And and I really love, there's a moment, it's always my favorite Star Trek moment in the um, Voyager ones we watched where Captain Janeway's like, you know, we're about to be hit, everybody batten down, get yourself safe, you know, be prepared for contact. Instead of sitting in her chair and putting on a seatbelt, she grabs a handrail, <laughs> and then the whole ship shakes. Right. So, subway style. Gotta love that. Yeah, I love that they protect themselves like being on a subway. Um, you know, so I got a couple quick things here. The Naked Truth. That is the first episode that featured the Vulcan neck pinch, and which was pretty cool. And that episode, that antimatter matter event, that that histor- that time travel event, is mentioned in the Next Generation as being a historical event in you know in the Star Trek universe. And it's interesting because the original episode that was season, th- I think it was episode three of season one, and the Next Gen episode where they talk about it is episode four in season one. So it's kind of very close in, in time and space. I like yeah. that. Um, Star Trek two thousand nine. If you enter a black hole, the tidal forces that would be acting upon you would reduce your body to strands of atoms in a process called spaghettification or the noodle effect. Both of those are astrophysics <laughs> terms, I believe, and I had to mention oh, that. Oh, they okay, are. Okay, those yep. are official. Um, year in hell, uh, Tuvok shaves with a razor, and I think he's blind at the time. I didn't even know they had any analog technology. I thought that was kind of cool. <laughs> uh, there's a point where Paris and Chakotay become members of the Kremen crew, they seem to kind of just fit in nicely there. They're not really prisoners so much as they are kind of like additional crew members that are kind of kept against their will, but they're kind of fine with it. Kind of a weird situation. And finally, Janeway, as she's flying into the Kremen ship, says that destroying it may restore time. And this is one year she'd like to forget. Uh, given our current state of events in this year of 2020, I think I speak for the entire human race when I say, ditto. So uh, that is it. So if you want to continue this conversation, if you want to talk to Ben about this hidden secret Voyager episode, you can get in touch with him. Well, let me get in touch with the show first. We, the show is on Twitter at FGGGBTPod. It's on Facebook at FGGGBT. But if you want to talk about this hidden episode with Ben Seepser, an enigmatic engineer, Ben, how can people get in touch with you? You can catch me on all the major social media networks at B Seepser. Ben, how do you spell that? B-S-I-E-P-S-E-R. Denon, how can people get in touch with you? So Twitter and Instagram, it's at Denon Michael. You just flip my name around. And then on Facebook, it's at Prof Denon Michael. 
Stick in the prof. You, you have to stick in the prof. That is, a, that is a rule that we have on this show. If you want to get in touch with Denon on Facebook, I am on Facebook at, at Analytical Mastermind. I'm on Twitter at Daniel J. Glenn, and I'm on Instagram at The Daniel J. Glenn. So this is a tough one. Uh, time travel is a very difficult subject to conquer, to maneuver, to navigate, but I think we did it successfully. And again, quantum foam comes to the rescue, Denon. Uh, so, um, but remember, this is power stuff. If you're able to travel through time, do it responsibly like Marty McFly. You want to be a superhero, not a supervillain. So until next time, thank you for listening. Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies is a Glenco production and is produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and Paul Springers with music and sound design written and performed by Paul Springers. Now, if you like this show, you're going to want to subscribe. Well, how do you do that? The good news is we're on all the major podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, and now Spotify. If you're not already on those platforms, don't worry. We've made it very easy for you. Go to our website, F triplegbt.com that's f triplegbt.com where you will find links to everything you're looking for all the subscribe buttons at the bottom of the page links to our social media are right there and if you go to the top of the page you'll see a little button that says episodes click on that and go to your favorite episode there you can find the show in its entirety. You can find the links that we talked about, the in real life examples that we brought to you, including videos. And of course, we've got each episode has its own YouTube video. You can watch it there if you prefer. And if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening.